0: As you guys have a seat, can we thank the band for being part of leading us in worship this morning. And if you're unfamiliar, this is a continuation of worship. There is not a section where we worship and then there's a section where we listen to someone teach. We believe that God has called us to see that worship is all of this. And not just what we do in here, but this is our corporate worship service together We are starting this series, Meals with Jesus, what we can learn at the table. When we look into the Gospels, it's interesting because we find that the idea of meals are found 90 times. And the actual idea of eating a meal with someone, or eating in general, is mentioned 109 times. Meals are a big part of our lives. If you... Have not realized, for the most part, we schedule our lives around when we are going to eat. So for me, that means that if we plan to get together, I've got a a little bit of fluidity in my day as to when I do what I do. But everything is based around, okay, I've got a lunch schedule from 11 to 12, and then I've got dinner at this time, and I've got to make sure that we are able to eat dinner in the event that we're going to a sporting event or we're going to do something else. Meals are a huge part of our lives. We think about meals regularly. In a book called Hungry City, what we learn about how from what we eat, uh, the author says, uh, Few acts are more expressive of companionship than the shared meal. Someone with whom we share food is likely to be our friend or or well on the way to becoming one. Think about who you sit down at meals with. Think about the people that you eat with. The people that you would uh, have a, a common table with. Think about how important food is to football season. If you don't know me, I'm a fan of the University of Tennessee, which means that football season is over. But... But for us, at, at my house last Saturday, it was the kickoff of college football season. We were going to watch games together. My wife prepared numerous things for us to eat. We we literally moved the table. This was something that me and the boys wanted to do. We'll move the table so that it's there for us to eat off of. I was told that was unacceptable for any practices beyond just this one gathering. But we gathered, we based our whole day around this. Meals are a huge portion of of our lives. So when we look into the Gospels and see the idea of meals, we see that Jesus talks about them a lot. Jesus works in the context of meals. When we read through these, the Gospel of Luke, we see that Jesus is always either going to a meal, at a meal, or leaving a meal. It is a regular portion of Luke's Gospel that Jesus would sit down and that he would eat with someone For the Jewish people to think about eating and what it meant to dine with someone. You you had to ask the question when you would sit down at a table. Well, who can I actually sit beside? Who can I share this meal with? Because for the Jewish people, Gentiles and those who spent time with Gentiles. the Gentile, the Bible word for those who were not Jewish. These Gentiles, you could not sit with them. Because doing lunch for these people was doing theology. If you're having a conversation in this setting, you are talking about what God does and how God does it. So these meals show us a lot about who God is. They show us Jesus, including those that the world excludes. We see that in these meals that God promises a forever banquet, a forever party, a forever celebration with him. When Jesus sits down at the table, he shows us how God welcomes people. When we see Jesus sit down at the table, we see the death and resurrection of Jesus opened up to us through a meal. That's why we take communion. When we look at the meals of the Gospel of Luke, we see God inviting us to feast with Him, to literally celebrate all that God is and all that God does by opening His Word. We see God's grace at meals. We see God's community at meals. We see God's mission at meals. So for us as a church family looking at this meal, And considering what it means for us to consider how we eat and if the way that we eat lines up with the way that Jesus happened to eat. We look and see certain concepts because being at a table and eating food with another person in the Bible meant that you were friends. It meant that you were unified with them. It meant that you had an intimate relationship. Eating with someone meant that they mattered to you. With all that in mind, we look at the Gospel of Luke chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, I would love for you to turn there. In Luke 5, beginning in verse 27, we see Jesus set up the most unacceptable meal in the the way that the Pharisees saw the world. After this, Jesus went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, Follow me. So leaving everything behind, he got up and he began to follow him. Then, the Le- then Levi, we call him Matthew, hosted a grand banquet for him at his house. Now there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others who were guests with them. But the Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples... Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus replied to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but I have come to call sinners to repentance. We see these four things in this text. Jesus speaks to the rejected. This is on your worship God. Jesus sits with wrongdoers. Jesus shames the self-righteous. And Jesus saves the repentant. One more time for those in the back. Jesus speaks to the rejected. Jesus sits with wrongdoers. Jesus shames the self-righteous. And Jesus saves the, re- the repentant. Think about this phrase. You are very familiar with it. You know it. The Son of Man came to... It's used numerous times throughout the Gospels. What is the conclusion of that phrase? There are three options for you. All of them are correct. The Son of Man came to do three things. We see these here. We see that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to what? And to give his life as a ransom for many. We see that the Son of Man comes to seek and save the lost. And finally, we see the Son of Man came eating and drinking. Again, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And the Son of Man came eating and drinking. Two of those are his purpose. One of those is the method by which he fulfills that purpose. Jesus always looking for a place to sit down with someone. And when Jesus sits down, he doesn't just sit down. He sits down with them. When in Luke's gospel, Jesus does not just eat and drink. The Bible tells he eats and he drinks with people. Uh, We know that his eating and his drinking were a problem for the religious, for the super religious because they would say that this Jesus that you're following, he's a drunkard and a sinner. Uh, Jesus is again always on his way to a meal, sitting at a meal, or he's leaving a meal. And here he is on his way to eat with the plans of sitting with someone that no one else would sit with. He meets with Levi, the tax collector, and he speaks to him. We've talked a lot about tax collectors in here We are beyond tax season, but all of us are leery of tax season. It's a stressful time in the lives of multiple, multiple people. But for the Bible, and when we talk about tax collecting in the Bible, it's not just what we think of when we have to write a check to the government in April. It's not just us getting a refund check in April. For the Bible when we read through scriptures and you consider the tax collector, you have to consider what was taking place there. Rome was the, they were the people who ruled and reigned over everything. And for those who are new or or forgetful, here's what would take place with Rome. Jewish men, these tax collectors, they had betrayed their own people for the sake of money and they had partnered with Rome. For the Pharisees, this was not just a Matter of the Jewish people who were being oppressed versus the Romans who were the oppressors. It was God versus the Romans, and the tax collectors have chosen to take the side of Rome. When you see this passage and it talks about him being at a certain place where he meets with Jesus, this tax booth, think of if you're driving down the interstate in the city of Houston or the state of Houston, however you want to view that thing, and there is a toll booth that's there. Has anyone ever had to stop and pay at the toll booth? Alright, so you may have a little sticker on your windshield for you to take care of the toll booth. Imagine that you always have to stop. There is no way to express your way through that. But when you stop, there's a tax collector who sits there. There is a toll taker there. And they will take what they are told to charge you by the Roman people. So you pull up and Rome has a certain amount that they tell you that you need to pay. However... The toll booth collector doesn't just tell you what you need to pay Rome. When they stop you, they have full permission, and they're backed by Roman forces to say to you, everyone out of the vehicle, everyone out of the caravan, everyone off of the camels, I want everyone standing in front of me. And that tax collector gets to walk around and see what you have and why you have it, and they get to choose if they want to take that for themselves. And if you like... To push back against that, the Roman government would say to you, no, the soldiers literally back the tax collectors. Again, we have the Jewish people who are saying that it is God versus the Romans, and these tax collectors are on the side. Of Rome, when we talk about tax collectors in the Bible, they are horrendous people and they are always lumped with the worst type of people. Whenever the Pharisees are talking, you'll notice a shift in the language in verse 27. It says this about the passage in the passage it tells us that Jesus is talking about tax collectors and the others. That's what the gospel writer uses. But when the Pharisees mention the others, they call them sinners. Those who were lumped with tax collectors were sinners and harlots. The tax collector had such a poor reputation that he was not allowed to go into the synagogue. The tax collector could not witness in court on your behalf if you were to talk to someone at a party, and you were to say to them, what does your child do? And you begin to have the conversation. Uh, and they say, well, my child is a lawyer. My child is a doctor. And if you were to say my child is a tax collector, you would be ostracized. You would never say that. It was a disrespected, unacceptable position. Because you were robbing your own people. The tax collector was a reverse Robin Hood who stole from the poor and gave to the rich. And this Jesus who you say you follow makes one of these guys his disciple. Makes one of these guys the writer of the Gospel of Matthew. Notice what he says to him. John, verse 27 again. Jesus went out, Saw the tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office and said to him, Follow me. So, leaving everything behind, he got up and he began to follow him. Now, when we read through the Bible, it's loaded. Because there's the literal everything that's there and then there's the figurative everything that's there and both of these are in play in this passage because we know if you're leaving everything you're going to leave what you're doing you're going to leave the stuff that's there and you're going to follow Jesus however if you're a tax collector this means that you are leaving the power of Rome you are leaving the position of Rome you are leaving the authority of Rome all of the things that you have at your disposal to collect money and to make as much money as you possibly can as you take advantage of those who are mistreated, you're walking away from it. So Jesus tells him to follow him and the Bible says he left everything and he got up and he followed him. We A couple of years ago, the elders and I, we went to a disciple shift conference in the Houston area. And while we sat there, we got to define in a very small group of people what it means to be a disciple. And the way that we define disciple according to what the Bible teaches is a a disciple follows Jesus because they are changed by Jesus and they are committed to the mission of Jesus. So when we talk about the idea of following in this passage, keep that in mind, a follower of Jesus. A disciple follows Jesus because they are changed by Jesus and they are committed to the mission of Jesus. But if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, that means that you literally and figuratively follow. That's what followers do. If they were not literally following, we would call them a stander. Followers follow. They take steps to go where they are intended to go. Instagram, you are more than likely on it because that's what is taking place. We are seeing a shift right now with, with moms and dads and grandparents. They're moving from their Facebook accounts where they post recipes. Now they're on Instagram and they're looking at their Instagram pages. However, and I've shared this with some of you before, it's a very neat feature in the grand scope of social media. If there is someone that you are happening to follow that drives you bonkers, let's just be honest, if you have that person that is in any of your feeds, could you raise your hand? If that person is me, I'm sorry. But if you have the person... <laughs> Someone said forgiven. So, we, if you have the person that you follow and they post too many stories or they post too many pictures or you could care less about the next thing that they're putting on their page, you can choose to mute that person. You can claim that you follow but you don't have to follow their stuff. When we talk about following Jesus, many of us are doing that. We are claiming to follow, but in actuality we're not following. Because if Jesus seemed to care for the rejected, it is important that we would in some way, shape or form, care for the rejected. So you'll notice with, with, the, with the tax collector, Matthew, he, he, it says he gets up and, and he leaves everything, And he begins to follow after Jesus. But in leaving everything, he's left everything that matters to him and everything that could have mattered. This seems pretty inconvenient to follow Jesus. At some point for us, Christianity became convenient, it it, it became something that was so simple that it had lost its meaning. And had ceased to matter. But to follow after Jesus is to inconvenience yourself for the sake of Jesus. Tim Keller says, all life changing love is inconvenient. Everything that we would believe that changes someone's life will inconvenience you. Consider your vows when you married. You are choosing not to be the most important person in your life anymore. Consider your children. You have little people who sit in the back seat of your car. Their feet can't even touch the floorboard. And they are demanding you in every way. That's an inconvenient love. For those of you who've chosen to have pets for whatever reason, there's an inconvenience because of that love. All life-changing love is inconvenient. And we see this man inconveniencing himself to follow Jesus because Jesus mattered more than his convenience. He matters so much to this new man, this new follower, that Jesus, when he begins to move, he goes with Matthew, and Matthew throws a party It tells us this in verse 28, 29 rather. Then Levi, he hosted a grand banquet for him at his house. Now, there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others who were guests with them. Tax collectors and others. And the Pharisees were there as well. So, you see, not only does Jesus speak to the rejected Jesus is about to sit with wrongdoers. Jesus is choosing to eat with them. Jesus is choosing to go into in the first century world what looked like an, him accepting and caring for those who were the furthest away. Uh, Jesus is choosing to have a relationship with them that goes beyond, I'm here and you're there. C.S. Lewis says, friendship is born at the moment when one man says to another, what, you too? I thought that no one but myself dealt with that. Jesus is having conversations with people. Jesus is talking to people. Jesus is interacting with people about God and his kingdom and God's hope and God's desire. And as he interacts, those who believe that they are the essence of God's kingdom are completely offended. This is Jesus simply showing the decency of building a common place. And when he does this, there is frustration uh, I almost use the words when I make out these alliterations, and I do that from time to time because I think they're helpful. But sometimes I'm like that I've used too many hard words in that, so I just don't do it. In this one, I almost wrote down Jesus sups with wrongdoers, but no one uses the word sup unless you're saying "what's up." So I moved away from that. But you look at this text and you see Jesus having a meal that does all of the things that we talked about earlier, relationship, developing that, caring for them, and when he does so, those who would view themselves as God's kingdom bringers are completely and utterly offended. When the, so in so doing, Jesus, when he sits with the wrongdoers, sets himself up to shame the self-righteous. Verse 30, but the Pharisees and their scribes, they were complaining. The word complaining does not quite do justice to what's taking place here. It doesn't say they were complaining in the sense that I would complain to you openly if we disagreed about something. Their complaint is the word grumble in the original language or murmur. They were murmuring under their breath because Jesus sat and ate with tax collectors and sinners. They were saying things under their breath about who Jesus is and why Jesus is that. Why? Because the Pharisees knew God's kingdom was going to be a huge party. They just thought they should be able to set the guest list. How many of us really think that the idea of God's kingdom is going to be like us, look like us, smell like us, seem like us? How many of us believe that the kingdom of God is defined completely and totally and in whole by people who are in full agreement with us? How many of us miss that God's kingdom is bigger than us? It's bigger than the fact that we have shared race or shared heritage. It's, it's God calling people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And that, in, uh, in and of itself, would be an offense to every. Pharisee in the room that the God of the Jewish people would choose to save those who were that far away. And here we see a small microcosmic picture of their frustration because Jesus, God himself, is sitting with people who they don't think are okay. They were rumbling. The Pharisees believed that Yahweh would usher in the kingdom by their outward holiness They mumbled and they murmured because this Jesus was doing something altogether different and in their opinion, absolutely weird. They avoided certain things and Jesus was doing those certain things. They avoided certain people and Jesus was sitting and eating with those certain people. They had ritual washings that they would go through every time they sat down. They were murmuring. One time, so go with me, I want us to look at this together. Two meals today for the price of one, Luke 11. Luke chapter 11, we see Jesus dealing with the Pharisees. Now you'll notice when he sits down at Matthew's table, he interacts with them in one way. And the way that he interacts with them is to ask a very simple question. When they say, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? They're whispering this, but Jesus answers them aloud. It is not for those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. But there's another place in Luke 11... Where Jesus is not sitting down with tax collectors and sinners. He's been invited into the home of a Pharisee to have a meal. And the way that Jesus interacts at this meal is a wee bit different. In the same way that Zacchaeus was a wee little man. You look into Luke 11 and you see this. As Jesus sits down and has a meal with some Pharisees. As he was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. Big deal commonality, relationship, growth. We're going to move somewhere with this Jesus. We're going to let Jesus know that we think that he does good things and knows great things and he says good things and he's an important influential leader. But he needs to stay away from certain people. So he went and he reclined at the table. That's kind of how they ate. I don't know how they did it because I like chairs where I can focus on my food. But they would lay down and they would eat. When the Pharisees saw this, he was amazed that he did not first perform the ritual washing before dinner. So, this is not the idea of you and I going to the restroom to make sure that we get all the germs off of our hands. Because ritual washing is you sharing water with the same people who've been washing their hands. And it. it is you saying that we were clean when we got here and we want to let everyone else know that we're clean. We're going to do the acceptable practice of the people who we're spending time with. It was socially unacceptable for Jesus not to wash his hands. It's the equivalent of you going into a home where everyone takes off their shoes. Anybody know those people? And you choosing, though you notice the six pairs of shoes at the door, not to take off your shoes. It's the equivalent of you going into someone's home and you bypassing them and not shaking their hands. My my grandmother had a phrase. That she used a lot. And it reminds me of what Jesus does here. Verse 38. When the Pharisees saw this. He was amazed. That he did not first perform the ritual washing before dinner. So the Lord said to him. You Pharisees. You you clean the outside of the cup and dish. But inside you are full of greed and, and evil. So Jesus just hears. That there's a little bit of a whisper. About him not doing the ritual washing. And he brings it up in full. He explodes on them and when he explodes on them again my, my grandmother she used to say the weirdest things i love quotable old ladies and she was one of them and one of her favorite things to say was if you did something wrong if you mistreated her if you did not clean up after yourself if you were offensive to her hoarding tendencies she would say, because she was i'll just be honest she would say something to the effect of, I'm going to cloud up and rain all over you. Like she were the Asgardian god Thor. Like that's what she thought was happening at her house. And that is exactly what Jesus does here. When they begin to whisper in this, in the place where everyone should be clean and get what it means to be clean, Jesus sees Filth and wretchedness. And in seeing the filth and wretchedness, he begins to point out all of their problems. You wash your stuff. Big deal. Your cup is clean, but you're filthy on the inside. And then he goes on. Verse 39. The Lord said to him, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of greed and evil. What's he mean by that? This is not just him talking about their symbolic greediness and evil vileness they would go about the process of washing and cleansing so that those who were less well off who could not afford the things to do so could not eat with them he's pointing out their flaw fools didn't he who made the outside make the inside too But give from what is within to the poor, and then everything is clean to you. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's exactly what Jesus does here. You wash your stuff, that's no big deal. Your cup is clean, but you're filthy on the inside. He then goes on further in Luke chapter 11. You tithe on stuff that you weren't asked to tithe on. That's not a big deal at all. You are not even obeying the prophet Micah who says, act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. You're doing exterior things and your interior is problematic. How many of us are doing exterior faith and our interior is problematic? Look, we can do show and show's easy. We can show up here. I love that you show up here. I love to see your smiling faces. I love to see the ones that aren't smiling. A little less than the smiling ones, but I love all of you. I care for you. But I don't know what's happening in your heart. How many of us exteriorly are clean and acceptable before what we consider to be clean and acceptable people? But here is wicked. Jesus is pointing out all of the flaws. To walk with God is to do justice out of merciful love. Verse 43, he goes on, you love to be seen. You just like to do religious stuff because that makes you acceptable to the religious people around you. You're like unmarked graves. Do you know what he means when he says that? When he calls them unmarked graves, he is saying, you're dead on the inside and you don't even know it. Jesus is calling, Jesus pushing, Jesus pressing. Again, when he's with sinners, he's loving, he's caring. But when he's with the righteous, those who would view themselves as righteous, the self-righteous, They get put on blast. (laughs) Then a teacher of the law tries to get involved as the conversation persists. You actually see that in Luke 11. This teacher of the law says, Teacher, you offend us when you say these things. So, in my mind, and it may not be how it happened, you've got the Pharisees and Jesus is lining them up. You've got a teacher of the law out of the eyeshot of Jesus who's like, Hey, could you just go easy on them? Here's what happens in my head. You know when a mom is or a dad is fully fixed on correcting one child, but they have multiple? Anybody? You are zoned in. You're letting them know how to straighten out their life, how to correct themselves, what's wrong. The other kid comes in to bring something else up. Anybody ever seen this? This kid doesn't even know what he's stepping into, but it's a mess. And when he does, he steps close, and that parent swivels on the dime, and he's, and another thing. We've been there? Anybody? And with you. That's what he does here. You teachers of the law. You give people burdens that you don't even think about helping them carry. I think that's the most convicting thing about this. Luke 11 passage to me as we're looking at, in the light of Jesus dealing with Pharisees in Luke 5 or, or with Jesus dealing with the, with the sinners in Luke 5 and the Pharisees in Luke 11 how many times do I look at the lives of those who are struggling and suffering and I rolled my eyes because I think they put themselves in that place they have burdens and I'm not even considering helping them carry those. Only the wealthy could maintain the spirituality these Pharisees were living at, asking. Well, a pastor friend says this, the Pharisees, they believed clean hands, clean heart. And Jesus is saying, if you have clean, a clean heart, you will get your hands dirty. Jesus deals with these self-righteous Pharisees Because they had the word, but they hid it. They built monuments, prophets, but they lived in a way that killed those exact same prophets. John Piper, I like him, he says this, One of the great cravings of our sinful human heart is the pleasure of being exalted by the importance of the people we know and the people we spend time with. We feel a kind of substitute significance when significant people take notice of us. And if we love this feeling enough, it will make us indifferent to unimportant people and eventually make us contemptuous of them. How many of us have clean cups and filthy hearts? Because Jesus, he's sitting down with people to seek and save. He's sitting down with people to show that he's the ransom for many. Jesus is here to save us from a condemnation that we cannot set ourselves free from. Jesus saves the repentant. We see that in verse 31 of chapter 5. I know we've been in two passages. you got combo meal 1, combo meal 3. Jesus replied to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the so-called righteous to repentance because they think they've got it all together. I've come to call sinners. The Pharisees really wanted every teacher to be a doctor who didn't want to deal with sick people. And Jesus, I'm here for the sick people. I have come to call sinners. Here's the word: I have come to call the righteous. Not I have come not to call the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. It's a big Bible word. We use it a lot. We we talk about repentance. What does that mean? To repent is to turn away from. So we have a sin nature. All of us have a sin nature. We are sinful people. And Jesus has called us to turn away from our sin. For those of you who are here who may have never made a profession of faith or trusted in Jesus, the call of God to you from this passage is, Hey, I love you. I love you immensely. I love you incredibly. I I loved you enough to get you here this morning. I care for your heart. And I'm going to call you to turn around. That, there's the beauty of that. But for those of us who are self-righteous, maybe, just maybe, Jesus has chiseled us as we look at this, these two passages together and we see Jesus calling us to turn away. To turn around. Jesus calling us to repent of our self-righteousness because self-righteousness, it may make you acceptable here but it's not a really popular thing in heaven. Jesus calls us to repent. He calls us to turn around. To to do a 180, not a 360 because you'd be going the same direction. But to do a 180 and move in the opposite way of where you were moving. So for believers in this room, maybe, just maybe, you look at your own heart and you see yourself in that Piper quote or yourself in the Pharisees or yourself in any of the things we've walked through the day and Jesus is calling you to turn around. Do, you expect, do we expect sick people not to act sick? Do we expect sinful people to be prim and proper in the way that we believe they should be prim and proper? If that's what you're expecting, Jesus says turn around and sit down with somebody. Have a conversation about something besides yourself. Turn around, and for those who are not believers, Jesus says, come, sit with me, talk to me, because I care about you. Jesus wants a relationship with you. That means you turn from your sin. Let's not ever lose sight of that. But turning from your sin means you hear him speak to you and say, follow me. And you leave everything and you follow him. Jesus says, turn around. So for us as a church, I just want you to know, every time that we take communion... And we do that pretty regularly here. Once a month, Jesus is reminding you that he's given you an opportunity to turn around. On October 6th, we're going to do something here. We're going to have a baptism celebration. We're going to baptize one of our, our kids if you're here, that's just a few weeks away, and you've never been baptized, but you consider yourself to be a believer in Jesus, that's a great time for you to celebrate what God is doing and what God has done in your life and to say, hey, Jesus, turn me around. If you're here and you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you've never trusted in Christ, Jesus right now may be calling you and saying, turn around, and we can have conversations about why you should be baptized, what baptism means, the importance of baptism. We can do those things with you so that we can celebrate that God would turn you around. God is always moving, always shaping, always acting in His way to turn us around The Pharisees, they, they knew that God was having a party. They just didn't like who God invited. But the God that we see in Jesus, he does not seem to discriminate. He, he invites the rich and the poor. He invites the highest and the lowest. He invites the high and the not. He, he chooses all the wrong kinds of people and he invites me. He invites you. Jesus has called us. Now, this caused a problem for Jesus because Jesus will eventually, as one guy says, get himself killed because of the way that he eats. Are we choosing to follow the model that Jesus sets for us in the way that we sit down with people and care and love people? If not, turn around and let God give you direction as to how your life should be lived. Turn around. Here's what I want you to do this morning. I invite you to bow your heads. Friends, if you've never trusted in Jesus, never placed your faith in Christ and you just showed up this morning because a friend kept bugging you and bothering you, I just want you to know that in the midst of them bugging and bothering, God was working so that He could invite you to turn around. Now you've never trusted Christ. I just would invite you to place your faith in him. Jesus, I am a sinner and you are a great savior. So I want to give you my sin. And I want to take the life that you offer in return. If that's you, then I would love for you to meet me in the back corner of the room, my right hand side, your left hand side. If you wanted to invite Christ to be Lord and Savior of your life, to deal with your sin because He has so kindly invited you to turn around. If you are a believer in Jesus this morning, and God has used His Word to convict you of your oversight, of sitting in religious circles and not thinking about those who are not part. Turn around. Turn around. Lord, you're so good to us and, and over these people right now, we pray for you to remind us of the goodness of your, of your good news. That we have a God who does not discriminate, who loves the rich and the poor. Lord, we thank you that you would invite us. And we thank you that you would model, that you choose all of the wrong kinds of people. Because you've chosen me, and you've chosen so many of these brothers and sisters in this room. So let us move toward you. Again, if you trusted Christ this morning, I'm in the back corner of the room.